With a focus on every detail, the world's best road cycling shoe just got better. Shimano engineers took a 3D look at pedaling dynamics to better understand how pressure is applied throughout the pedal stroke. They discovered distinct zones where force is exerted differently across the shoe and optimized the RC902 shape and materials to maximize power transfer while maintaining a comfortable, lightweight design. The newest S-Fire shoe is available in standard as well as women's specific and wide options. Shimano recognizes that while performance is king, aesthetics are important too. The sleek RC902 comes in four colors, letting you spice things up with stunning blue or the all new red color option. For a more subtle look, the RC902 is also available in the always fashionable black and classic white. Already on the feet of Mathieu Vanderpoel and Wout van Aert, now you can focus on every detail. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Bobby and Jens. My name is Bobby Julik, and on the other side of the Atlantic, we have the Yenzi. Yenzi, how you doing? I'm doing fine, and more importantly, my daughter is doing fine as well because she had a horse riding accident. And after they took her away with the ambulance, um, after the first x-rays, it revealed that she has no broken vertebra. Then later on, they figured out that the liver is okay as well and her kidneys as well. So she only had to stay two nights in hospital and she's back home and she is perfectly fine. So my daughter is fine and I am much more than fine by now. Oh man, I'm sorry to hear that, Yanzi. I'm sorry to hear that. Well, um, today we have quite a special guest. His name is James Hayden. He's an ultra endurance unsupported bike packer champion and we had a fantastic chat with him so with no further ado welcome james hayden thank you thank you for having me man i tell you you know we uh we're fans of the sport of cycling and i must admit i don't have much knowledge about what you do the ultra endurance bikepacking world. But before we jump into that, I always like starting off with, you know, getting to know the person and introducing you to our listeners. So take a second and tell us a little bit about your childhood and how you got into this wonderful world of, of cycling. Long story short, I guess. I mean, I must start by saying I'm a massive fan of cycling as well. So it's really cool to be able to come on the podcast and speak with both of you who I've watched, you know, race and things over, over the years. So that's awesome. For me, I never really did cycling like I, perhaps most people who might come on your podcast did cycling when I was young. I, I had a bike with some stabilizers, as we all do, and, and I fell off that quite frequently. I had a mountain bike and I sort of, you know, rode around uh, where we lived. We lived in the middle of nowhere. You know, the nearest house was miles away. So you could just tear around in the forest on your, on, on your bike as a kid. 
But I didn't actually get into cycling as a, as a thing until I started living in London aged uh, 19. And I needed to commute from where I lived in South London to my uh, university in, in North London. So it was a journey of some 12 miles, astronomical. But the easiest and, and quickest, most efficient way to get uh, across London and the most enjoyable was actually by, by cycling. So as, as many, you know, Londoners do, I had a, had a little fixed gear bicycle. I was, I was one of those hipsters. And uh, we, we, that was sort of where it started. It's, it's obviously gone a long way since then, but, but yeah. Do you, do you remember your first memory of being on a bicycle? Um, I, I couldn't say I remember my first memory, but I have a very strong memory from maybe three, four years old. I was on my you know little bicycle with uh, stabilizers on the back. And I was riding along our driveway and at the edge of the driveway, there was a kind of uh, drop off onto a grass uh, verge. And I just sort of thought, oh, I, I'll jump off that. And I, and I just sort of took off at, at as much speed as I could, rode off the, the drop. And it must have been, I mean, it felt like 10 foot, but it was probably about one foot. And obviously it ended all in, all in tears as I went head over first when, when I landed. And that was sort of one of, one of the first memories I have and, and perhaps set, set the scene for the years to come. <laughs> so from all these uh, riding as a student, as a child, where and when and how did you ever um, take your first license and started racing with a number on the back where did that change happen yeah it's a good good question so uh, i did get into to racing as as you guys know racing um when i was living in south london i lived in uh, in streatham so not far from streatham is herne hill and herne hill obviously you've got the velodrome from the olympics back in back in the early uh, 20th century and As I did, I, I kind of got a bit intrigued by this velodrome and, and I knew the history of it. And I thought, oh, I'll go down and see what this is about with my fixed gear bicycle. So I took off the, uh, you know, we have cut down riser handlebars as you ride around the city, fitted some some drop bars and some brakes to be legal and, and went down one evening. And I did the training and things. And then they had an, uh, they had a, an open meet one weekend and I, and I entered this, this open meet and, and raced and it was, you know, a mix of races. So there was uh, sprints, there was, you know, scratch races, all, all, all sorts. And uh, actually there was a, there was a Kieran as well, which was amazing fun um, for, for someone who kind of never really been into it. And, and I did, you know, quite well and I really, really enjoyed it. And, and it sort of went from there and, and I did more track and then I got a, a road license. There was a local team called Catford and I joined Catford Cycling Club and, and started racing with them. And this was maybe around age, age 21 or so. Wait a second. Let me, let me pause uh, just to make sure I got this right. So the first time that you were racing, you did a Kieran? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to, to, to everyone, I'm sure that listens to this podcast, they may know what that is, but the Kieran is basically an event on the track where you're behind a Derny for most of it. And then the Derny pulls off Derny being like a motorcycle moped. And then it's just a, I don't know, MMA fight to the end. And the first one across the line wins. Yeah. Just, so yeah. I, I would have to say that would be the last thing I would ever do. I've never done a Kieran. <laughs> Jens, have you ever done a Kieran? Um, no, I don't. But we can call that a proper baptism of fire <laughs> for you, my friend. That is very impressive. Chapeau, chapeau. Yeah. And Kyrene as your first event. Very often, for the people, they haven't heard too much about it. Very often you read in the results, place one and two, and then place three to five, crashed across the line. <laughs> 
<laughs> quite often, actually. That's the result. It was it was a proper yeah. drag race, yeah. Um, like we did our research on you and we did find that you had one or two crashes in your career and broken bones. Do you think you did crash more often than others? Were you taking more risk or what caused these injuries? Do you ever look back at that and ask yourself why or what? Uh, I don't I don't need to look too far back because I still crash now. So <laughs> uh, it, 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 it's, it's Wait, an interesting. you took the stabilizers off? Yeah, I should have put them you back would. on. You know, I, I'm thinking now that I'm a retired pro, I'm thinking of putting them back on. Yeah, it's probably sensible. Um, it's a good question, Jens. I think the way my brain is wired, I, I sort of seek out uh, fear and, you know, pushing, pushing the edge of things because it gets, it gets, you know, some people would say it gets the heart rate going or it dumps a load of adrenaline in your, in your bloodstream. You just feel good. You feel alive. So I do need to feel that more than perhaps other people, but so some of them are definitely self-inflicted through just being an idiot uh, <laughs> and lacking caution. Some were, were kind of inflicted by uh, things that probably were outside of my control. A really bad one I had probably 2014 or so. Car pulled out on me when I was out training. I was coming down a hill, um, probably about 30 miles an hour, 50K an hour, and pulled out. I had nowhere to go, and I just went straight in uh, uh, over my handlebars and face first into a curb and kind of broke everything in the, in the right side of my face. Um, so that one uh, probably wasn't my fault, but definitely some of the other ones were. <laughs> wow. Yes. Never, never fun falling off the old push bike, that's for sure. No, there's not much but... protection in Lycra, is there? No, no. And uh, when we see our kids doing it, it's always one of those things we think about. But okay, so you made the move to ultra endurance bikepacking in 2015. Uh, explain a little bit to our ourselves and our listeners, for those who don't know, what that world is all about. Yeah, I mean... It's quite a niche thing, uh, has grown a lot since 2015, what we're now in 2021, so it's been six years. Um, and it's incredible the way it's grown. There are two types of sort of long distance racing. There's unsupported and then there's supported. Unsupported is without any uh, private resupply, you know, so you don't have your body following you in, in the car, handing you up drinks and, you know, you're perfectly organized milkshakes and all sorts at any time interval you want. Whereas supported does have that. Uh, supported would be like Ram Race Across America, whereas unsupported is things like Transcontinental or the Tour Divide. I've started with unsupported racing and just stuck with that because for me, it, it, it suits me. Um, I love the pureness of it. You're, you're by yourself. And we, we race anything from hundreds to, to thousands of kilometers flat out. So when you start, the time, the clock starts at the start and it doesn't end, the time doesn't stop until you finish. So if you need to stop and sleep or you need to stop and buy some food at a shop or anything, the clock is still running. And it makes it quite an exciting way to race. Um, just you yourself, your bike uh, against the clock, really. Um, so uh, just for me, like as I'm a total beginner to this, um, let's say you got uh, 50 starters. Is that a mess start or they let you guys off 10 minutes apart from each other, like a time trial? Yeah, most races are a mass start. And 
you might think it could be chaos, but it actually works quite well um, because normally there'll be some people at the front who really want to race hard and most people are quite sensible and like, this is going to take me eight days. I might as well just take it easy for the first half an hour. And actually the Transcontinental uh, used to start in Herzbergen. So you've obviously raced many of the classic races, so you will know um, the Kappenmuhr. And the race would start in Herzbergen and it would race up the Kappenmuhr and we would start at 10 p.m. at night. So there would be obviously all, all of the town would come out to spectate because, uh, you know, cycling is massive in Belgium and there would be people with uh, flame torches and all sorts all lined up the Kappel Moor. You, you have to find the videos and watch it because for you, there will have been nothing like racing up there. But for me, there was nothing like that sensation of the race starting at 10 p.m. You'd race flat out from the town centre all the way up the Kappel Moor, past the church. And all of a sudden you'd be in silence. There'd be no one. And you would then ride off into the night and suddenly you'd have this dawning realization on you that you'd now had 4,000 kilometers to race to, to get to the finish of the transcontinental in, um, in, in Greece or Turkey. It was uh, quite something. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. So you did your first transcontinental in 2015, um, which, yeah, just to get you, you hit on it a little bit. It starts in Belgium, yeah, then goes towards Mont Ventoux. You had a checkpoint near in between Cesriere and Finisterre, which, man, those must have been some fun climbs to do in the in the dark and totally unsupported. <laughs> and then heading to Istanbul and then Croatia. But how do you train for your first ever transcontinental? yeah, it's 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 a good it's a good question. Um, and it's one that I think a lot of people still mull over now. The reality is that you can, there are two components to doing a race like this, much like any race, perhaps more so something like this. There's the physical and then there's the mental. And, you know, the mental side is important in any sort of race, but in this sort of race, it is the deciding factor, so to speak. Um, your physical fitness gets you a seat at the table, but your mental fitness is the thing that determines whether you finish or not really. Now, physically, obviously, I mean, you guys have done many years of training, but you, you can't really physically train for something like this. You just need to, you know, ride your bike a lot, be in good physical shape, strong and, and, and all of these general things, but obviously not overdo it uh, and not destroy yourself. Uh, and generally, it's better to undercook these things than overcook it, because if you start overcooking, then you're, you're going to kind of dig into your mental strength and, and, and use that and abuse that. And it's a lot better to be fresher at the start, feeling really excited and in a very good mental place with a lot of um, uh, willpower and reserve strength left to, to get you to the finish. But regardless of the extreme mental stress that you have to endure, you're also putting a massive strain on your body. And in 2015, tell us what happened. Um, I understand yeah. that... that <laughs> Tell us, tell us uh, what happened towards the end of that race. So 2015 was obviously my first year doing this. I think I was 24 or five at the time, I think 24. I was quite young and uh, let's say um, borderline overconfident uh, in, in, my, in my abilities. So I set out from the start like a, a charging bull and essentially raced flat out to, to Mont Ventoux. So it's about 950 kilometers to the first checkpoint. I thought it really mattered who got through the first checkpoint first, like that was going to decide the race. So I raced 950 kilometers flat out. I stopped for two 20-minute sleeps, and I think I got down to, to Mont Ventoux in something like 36 hours. 
I then had to ride up Mont Ventoux at about 2 p.m. in the afternoon, and I'm sure you've both ridden that and know uh, how quite horrible Mont Ventoux is, and, and it broke me sideways. Things then just started to go south from there. Really, I just pushed my body far too far. And rather than being able to kind of, you know, plateau with that fatigue or, or even get a little bit better over the next four days, I just sort of got a lot worse as my body broke down. Eventually, as we sort of got about two and a half thousand kilometers into the race in, in um, Croatia, I started to experience what's called Shermer's neck. Now, it's not, not a very common thing because you really only get it when you're cycling, but because of the posture of cycling, your head is quite a heavy weight and a moment on, on your neck and the muscles in your neck just start fatiguing and, and eventually they will just go and stop working and you can't hold your, your head up. So your chin just drops to your chest and, and, and really all you can see is the handlebars in front of you and, and sort of your front wheel. And so eventually sort of in, in Montenegro, I mean, I, I rode on with this for probably 500 kilometers, you know, a day and a half or something like that, making, making the best, you know, one-handed holding my head up or, 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 or so as you can. And yeah, eventually I just sort of decided because the pain was getting quite bad in my back that, uh, you know, back pain isn't something to, to mess around with, unlike other pains you can tolerate. Um, and, and I withdrew from, from the race in, in Montenegro. I think you're leaving out a little bit of a detail there. You actually, I, I saw this on YouTube when we were looking into this, that you actually kind of jerry-rigged yeah. a support <laughs> by taping up your head. Yeah, yeah. And you put that picture on Instagram. Yeah, so there's there's a famous photo by Camille McMillan, um, the, the ex-professional, you know, sort of race photographer, uh, who now photographs these sort of races. Uh, and what what we did was we got some kind of and this was like my third attempt at bodging being able to hold my, my head up i'd uh you know tried to get a brace or stuff something under my chin i tried a few different things but nothing was really working and this was like my third go and we got some kineso tape and taped it around my forehead put one around my chest and then used a band between the back to kind of hold, hold it up and try and do something and uh, it didn't work in the absolute slightest but uh the the the, the will was there i guess so I guess you had quite a learning curve there. Yeah, <laughs> ba to, baptism to of get, fire. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 indeed, once again. <clears throat> hey, um, now, uh, looking at you finally winning that race, but before that, in March 2017, the founder of the Transcontinental Race, Mike Hall, was killed racing in Australia. You did start a fundraiser to get him back home. How, how did all that work out? Uh, I, I still remember the way, where I, well, everything, but essentially he was racing the Indian Pacific Wheel Race, um, the first edition run by Jesse Carlson and Sarah Hammond in, in, in Australia. Uh, him and Christoph Aligart. Uh, Christoph Aligart is uh, perhaps the... the one, of, one of the best, really. Um, could still be considered that from, from Belgium. And... He, they, they were racing and um, Mike was uh, hit by a driver and killed. Um, and uh, yeah, you said uh, I did I did sort of start a fundraiser because I didn't know. I just had the thought at the time and uh, I thought I'd start it before sort of someone else less scrupulous, you, know, uh, you know, someone else started it. And, um, you know, because with these things, like there's always costs and these stuff that, that is involved and it's quite horrible and if you can take some pain of someone having to deal with that by by having the ability then then yeah so you did that fundraiser to to get him home to get his body back home 
Yeah, 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 yeah. And if there was cost needed, some of the money went mm. to, to legal stuff and things like that, to, and things. But but the money went to to his uh, to his mother Pat, Pat Hall, and his brother Russ. Yeah, can I just make a point, actually, because it's a good question, and no one's really asked me about that for a long time. It sort of got forgotten, but it was the, the amount raised was substantial. It was about eighty thousand pounds, and that is a reflection on the community of of bike packing and, and ultra endurance about uh, that it is like a community and uh, like sort of you know a, and a family. And uh, maybe it's a moment just to say thank you to to everyone who who you know chipped into that because it's it's quite special. We are deep down into classic season. And if you're looking for some help getting back into shape, don't worry, Active Pass from outside has you covered. Bobby and myself are both members and get to enjoy training plans, exclusive gear discounts, entry to cycling events and more, including access to premium content from other outside publications like Velo News, Trail Runner, Yoga Journal, and Backpacker. And there's more coming soon, including Peloton Magazine. All in all, it's $350 worth of value for just $99. But if you enter our special coupon code, BobbyJens25, at checkout, you will get another 25% off. Go to valuenews.com slash activepass and enter BobbyJens25. All one word, lowercase, at checkout to receive our special 25% discount. Just to loop back a little bit in, in 2015, because we're going to get to you finally winning this sucker. <laughs> but so 2015, Sherman's neck, yeah. which basically you have to tape up your neck. <laughs> and then in 2016, you go back. Yeah, you know, obviously you've learned a couple things. You were in a strong position again, but then injury happened yet again. Tell us a little bit about that injury. Yeah, I didn't. I, I learned a lot, and I put it into practice. I arrived at the first checkpoint in, I think, third or fourth. I think it was it was going to be it was going to be fourth, but then Neil Phillips um, stopped at a KFC to get some dinner just before the checkpoint, so I sort of passed him, and then got in third. And I remember riding past and kind of waving at him, <laughs> just thinking, "Hey, sucker, you missed uh, you missed the place at the first checkpoint." Um, but I, I, I'd been struggling. So there'd been a big lightning storm and a lot of rain on the first day. And I, I used to have breathing problems. I kind of still do, but they're a lot under control now. And this was the start of that really. And I just couldn't breathe, um, and all sorts of stuff. And I got to the first checkpoint and I just kind of was like, I can't, I can't breathe. All I'm doing is coughing and, and, you know, wheezing and all of this. So I took some time out of the first checkpoint, saw a doctor that settled down and things. And, um, yeah, and then I, I kind of reset and rather than trying to do, you know, as well as I can, position-wise, I just thought, well, look, I'm here. Uh, I still want to learn the lessons to be able to come back a third time because obviously I wanted to do that. And I thought, I'm just going to finish. It doesn't matter how long it takes me to get there. If it takes me a month to get to, to uh, Turkey, then it takes a month. Okay, so now now we're there. You had issues in 2015 and 2016. But now you return in 2017 and re and claim the crown, claim the 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 top spot of the transcontinental race, which I mean is definitely growing in popularity. Um, what what did you change over those first two 
you know, definitely not failures. I would call them learning curves yeah. that allowed you to, yeah, just pop up on the top step of the podium. I think it's a good way. The, the way I, I really dislike the word failure, so it's interesting the way you phrased that. For me, I, I don't mind you know calling things a failure, but a lot of the time people are afraid to fail, and so they don't do anything in the first place. But yet, if you're uh, you know if you're not going to fail, you're never going to learn. And, and which brings me round to the fact that I learned a hell of a lot in the first two editions about how to race these races and about how my body worked and how I needed to to use that to the best of it. I just sort of put that into practice and I came back the third time. I was fit the third time, um, not really much fitter than the second, but a bit fitter. But it was more that I'd learned how I needed to race it. I had the mental component as well. And I was just sensible from the beginning. I can't remember the exact numbers, but if you looked it up, I would have arrived at the first checkpoint probably in fifth or something. The second checkpoint maybe in third. And then I think the third checkpoint in second. And then uh, I just chose my moment and because I'd ridden sensibly at the start, although I was obviously extremely fatigued uh, after 3,000 kilometers, I wasn't as fatigued as others and I still had something left. I had a gear left, you know, I had some energy left and I just picked my moment and I just, you know, changed up a gear and, um, and yeah, there, there was sort of 750 kilometers from, from sort of when I started moving into first place in, in Romania to the finish and i just rode that flat out in uh, 50 hours so um talking about these long distances and putting out some numbers there um <clears throat> you must average like 300 to 350 400 kilometers a day right so about 455 yeah yeah so the day only has 24 <laughs> hours where does the sleep fit in how much sleep do you actually get during like an event like that Everyone is different. So the amount of sleep I get varies to others. Some need a bit more, some can get by on a bit less. And I think sleep's one of these things that you need to kind of dose it out, you know, when you need it. In the transcontinental, you might be looking at something like two hours average a night over the race. Um, some nights I probably would sleep three, but then like the last night I would probably only sleep 20-minute power nap. How would you wake yourself up? I mean, after like five, six, seven days with two hour sleep periods, my body would just shut down and I would sleep for like 24 hours in one piece. How, how did you wake up? Yeah, good question. I mean, normally I sleep 10, maybe even 11 hours a night <laughs> at home when oh, I'm training. You. So bless you. Those were the days. I'm, yeah, I, I love sleep. I love sleep. But when you're racing, the the brain is this amazing thing and, and the mentality switches in the brain and you don't need an alarm. Like, I mean, I have an alarm and I set it, but it goes and I'm awake. And this is after an hour and a half. So I guess for two hours sleep, you wouldn't check into a hotel, right? You would just sleep on a roadside. Do you bring like a mattress? Because I saw pictures of your bike. We come to that later. Um, there's no space for a tent. Right, so you just sleep on a blanket on a roadside, or how do we have to um, experience yeah. uh, that? It's a good question, actually. It comes back to a question Bobby asked before about what what, what did I learn? I learned that actually sleeping in a hotel for me is worth the. It's not you don't even really lose time, but I would check into a hotel most nights in Europe. There are so many hotels, so many twenty four hour hotels. And if you use your phone and you go on booking.com or wherever earlier on, 
you can make the reservation, you can set the distance, you can even organize for that hotel to have food waiting for you so there's enough to eat when you arrive and eat when you leave. So by doing that, it's being efficient actually because you're doing multiple things at the same time and same place. You're actually saving yourself time. You can also maybe get a shower if you need to charge anything you need. And checking in, I got down to checking in within like five minutes. I was in the door, done, up in my hotel room, five minutes. And that's almost as quick as like finding somewhere to sleep on the side of the road, rolling your sleeping pad out, blowing it up. You know, try blowing a sleeping pad up after 400 kilometers. It's, it's, not, it's not so quick. So in the transcontinental, I actually took to sleeping in a hotel. Um, some people call me a bit soft for doing this, but it made me faster, so I don't care. I did it. Going back a second, you said that you had to choose your moment, but we're not talking about a... Kieran here. We're not talking about a criterion. We're not even talking about a stage in the Tour de France. We're talking about an eight to 12 day event. What clicks in your head and when does it say that, okay, now's the moment? And what is that actually? I mean, you said you clicked down a gear, but is it you start to think, I'm going to be a little bit more efficient with my check-in because like you said, everything counts for, for time or I'm going to sleep a little bit less, or um, I'm going to you know, go faster on a descent. These are all just so many questions that I have is what defines an attack in yeah. this ultra, sort of ultra, <laughs> ultra long event? I think it depends on the race. It depends on the situations. I do remember that in that sort of first time in I won Transcontinental, I was racing against Bjorn Lennard from, from Germany, an incredible competitor. He'd, he'd sort of led the race for the past couple of days. So we were maybe the sixth day he'd led it since the fourth, the fifth, as we were heading uh, east to checkpoint three. And, and, and slowly over that day, let's call it the sixth day, I'd been gaining on him as we approached checkpoint three. And, and I hadn't really changed how I was doing anything. So I determined that he must be slowing down because I was gaining on him. And I thought, well, if he's slowing down, I don't feel any worse. This is a good moment. After checkpoint three, uh, I then got quite near him. Um, you know, we're talking within 20 kilometers or so, you know, <laughs> relatively near. And uh, I just sensed that this was the moment while he was weakening. If I and I felt as good as I did and I had a bit of energy left, if I could get in front of him and pass him that night, he might lose it mentally and crack. Really, there's, there's no other way of putting that. Because for me, I know that if someone passes me and I'm doing all I can, you're going to feel a bit disheartened with yourself. So you said, uh, what did I do? And you said, you know, be more efficient and things. And that's exactly it. So you can't really start cycling any faster because you're really probably already cycling nearly as fast as you can. Yes, you could take a few more risks on the downhills. And, and sometimes I might do that, but I try to be quite cautious because it's easy to make mistakes there. But it's just about stopping when you stop, stop a bit, because you lose nearly all of your time stopping, you know, stopping to get food, stopping to get drinks. And, and I don't stop much anyway, but I stopped even less. And when I stopped, I was even quicker. So rather than perhaps sitting, you know, stopping in a petrol station, buying my sandwiches and my drinks, and maybe allowing myself to sit down for five, 10 minutes to eat some of those outside the petrol station, I, I would just stuff everything in my pockets and keep cycling, you know, and that saves 10 minutes. And you do that, four or five times a day, you save an hour. And, you know, that's 20K or so. So it just uh, like a technical question, um, or two actually. You have constant live coverage of where everybody else is compared to you with the GPS? 
You can see everybody yeah. else. First question and second yeah. question. Do you see everybody passing? Because you only have to hit the checkpoints. In between them, you can write right or left or up and down, however you want, as long as you hit the checkpoints, right? Yeah, good question. So uh, I should come back. In the tra the transcontinental race is a uh, what, what I call a free route race. Mm -hmm. So essentially, you get given a start, a finish point, and checkpoints. And you have to then make your own route between those points, okay? And everyone ends up on a more similar, but sometimes different and sometimes quite different routes. And that's led to some real great excitement and races over the years as people have taken different routes. So you asked if there were GPS trackers and yes, there is a G everyone has a GPS tracker either for safety or just being able to track other people. And you can go onto the website and see where people are. Whether you should or shouldn't do that while you're racing to, to keep your own mental game in a good place is another question and, a, and an interesting one. But I allowed myself at that point, six, seven days in to check and to keep a track. And I passed him, but I didn't physically see him. Wow. And often you won't physically see other people because you might be on a slightly different route. Sometimes you'll go past a petrol station and you will see a bicycle that is most obviously a competitor in the races, which is quite exciting because there you are just in the middle of bloody nowhere. And there's another, another competitor's bike. Man, oh man. I mean, um, I, I could not imagine. I have so many other like little technical things with all the gizmos <laughs> that you have to have on there. Um, but one of the things that cracked me up coming from a guy that can't chew gum and be on a podcast at the same time was you were talking about making reservations on your phone <laughs> when you were riding down the road. Like, no, thank you. No, thank you. So, so yes, Technology. back to back wins in 2017, 2018 and 2019, you started to look for some other off-road races And you took the Silk Road mountain race in Kyrgyzstan. Um, you were again in, in position near the front of that race. And then, according to reports, you had a, a terrifying experience. I, I need some more details on what, what, what happened there. Yeah, so, so we jumped a bit. But sort of after the second win in Transcontinental, I kind of was ready to find another new challenge. And I was a bit actually lost over that winter because I didn't really know what that looked like yet. And it took me some time to find that. Um, I entered an event called Italy Divide in, in April that year, 2019, which was sort of off-road race in, in Italy. And that was really exciting. Raced against Sofan Sahili. And, and we actually drew, which is an, an incredible story. And I mean, we could talk for hours on that. I then went and raced uh, the Highland Trail 550. So this is a mountain bike event in, in May. So those kind of two races segue into actually doing Silk Road mountain race because I had no off-road racing experience, had no mountain experience, no nothing. So I sort of spent the year almost inadvertently getting the experience I needed to be able to go and do Silk Road mountain race. So I went to Kyrgyzstan in August that year and, and raced and it was uh, as hard as it looks. It, it's unimaginably difficult you're not really racing against other competitors you're racing against the the terrain the topography and, and the weather you know it's it's incredible i got uh six days into the race it was about midnight and i was i was riding along and i had my head torch on really really low because i was just saving battery and i could kind of see my way well enough because i was going uphill so it didn't really matter if i hit anything i wasn't going to fall off fast and all of a sudden two horse riders just, just appeared in front of me. Now, Kyrgyz people are incredibly friendly and I've 
had some amazing hospitality there. So I thought they were just saying, you know, hello, what are you doing in the mountains at this time of night? Nice to see you, you know. Do you want a sip of vodka? Because that's what they do. But I quickly discerned that they were not like that friendly and they were pretty riled up on vodka. And long story short, uh, they tried to rob me. Um, that didn't happen. Uh, I kind of didn't really let that happen. A lot of things went through my mind at that point, but I wasn't prepared to allow them to, to do that. And I, I kind of used my advantage of the bicycle being faster downhill than a horse. Um, when I'd been touring in Kyrgyzstan before the race, I'd actually race some horse riders across a mountain, so up and down, and they beat me up, but then I beat them down. So we had a lot of fun doing that, but I also knew in my head that I was faster than a horse downhill easily. And uh, I managed to kind of free myself from them and then descend uh, away from them. So yeah, terrifying. It was, it was just, uh, yeah, exciting. <laughs> so um, talking about some difficulties, what would be, if you had one of them, the darkest moment where you go, geez, what the heck am I doing here? What for? Like moments where you go, I just want to go home. I just want to crawl up and just cry for mama. Did you ever <laughs> had moments like that? Um, not completely to the extent of your, your description, no. <laughs> I think that the thing is that the brain, you know, if you allow these thoughts to enter the brain, it, it's very hard to get them back out again. Because once they're there, once the seed is is, is taken, you know, sown, then then it's just going to grow like a wildfire. So you have to shut them off before they even enter. Now I've been in some very dark places where, you know, I've been pushing so hard. The fatigue is so deep uh, that I can barely move. You know, Kyrgyzstan is, is a great example. The the last night there, I'd done a um, 48-hour straight push there to get to the finish. And I was just blown completely and I could barely take one step in front of another because I was so tired, you know, but what else are you going to do at these points, but take that next step because no one's going to come and save you. And and the, the finish is so close. So you just have to wheel yourself on, you know, you have to hold that little carrot out in front of you like a, like a rabbit. <laughs> An ambitious undertaking to make the best race shoe even better. Shimano engineers studied pedaling dynamics while examining different rider types and pedaling styles to create its most technologically advanced cycling shoe. The pinnacle of road race performance. Every aspect of the S-Fire RC902 shoe is designed to maximize power transmission, comfort, and performance. Multiple times so far you've mentioned, you know, your brain, your head. And we haven't hit on this yet, but the preferred fuel source, the, the main fuel source to the brain is glucose. Yeah. And now I, I need to hear how you're making so many of these decisions, how you decide I'm going to outrun a horse downhill on a bicycle. What, what are you eating? What do you have in your pockets or your saddlebag that's allowing you to continue and to actually be cognizant of these dangers and navigate and make hotel reservations on your phone while doing so? You'll eat anything going, basically. By the third day, you'll have it and you'll have it again. And, 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 you know, and you'll have some more to go on the road with you. So there's no sports nutrition here. There's none of these you know, grams per hour or carbohydrates or anything. You'll take what you can get and you'll take a bit more of it is really the answer. And if you're in Europe, obviously the choice is, is a lot better. 
If you're in uh, Kyrgyzstan, yeah, the choice is pretty slim. And I actually opted to take um, 20,000 calories worth of freeze-dried food with me. And I actually I took a stove to heat that up so I could have hot food at any point I wanted, which a lot of people, well, basically no one did. No one racing at the front end did that. But I sat down and did some thinking and some calculations, and I thought it was a good decision, and it, it seems to have paid off. Well, Jens is talking about charging the gizmos. I still got to ask you about what you're eating. Like what, what was like your favorite go-to and then what was the sketchiest thing you had to oh, eat man. just for calories? Did you ever eat a scorpion? Yeah. <laughs> like somebody no. of Kyrgyzstan, I think it's like, a, it's like an absolute delicatessen thing over there in some of these states. Food is this interesting thing, and, and if, if there are nerdy people out there, right, that that, that, that know about calories and these things, the first day of one of these races, I'll, I'll tear through sixteen thousand calories. You know, oh, uh, in okay. in in what I'm burning, not what I'm eating, but what I'm burning, and I'll then burn sort of you know descending down to about seven thousand on on the last day. So you can add those numbers up, and I've added the numbers up. I you know this is from a power meter, so it's valid. I've added them up and compared them against. Um, some of the highest known calorie expenditures, which is sort of uh, um, polar expeditions when they when they climb the Ross Ice Shelf and things, and it's you know Mike Stroud and stuff, and it's not it's not far off those numbers really. So it's quite fascinating. So as I say, you will eat anything. My like my best meal is there. There are so many because you'll just be lusting after food for for kilometers on end, and you know you'll have this dream thing in your mind, and you'll get to a shop. And it'll be nothing of that, but it'll be terrible. But you're so hungry that it, it, it will be amazing. Um, the best thing, though, is normally like the first meal you get once you're finished because you can actually get a good bit of food. You can sit down and enjoy it. And it's probably quite salty. And normally it's washed down by a nice a nice beer. Jeez. I mean, like you said. The worst said thing I've eaten is just like when you can't get any real food and you're just living off candy bars or something like that. And it's just horrible. You know, they go in, they come out and uh, your mouth gets all ulcered up and it's, it's not pleasant. So luckily no scorpion. <laughs> not, no yet. scorpion not yet. Not yet. <laughs> um, hey, um, I have not a yet. question um, where I probably don't really want to know the answer and we can cut <laughs> it out later, but You start um, um, a, your journey in your proper race outfit uh, with all the correct sponsors on. Where and how did the washing happen of that? Or you just never leave the chamois for eight days? As I said, you can just skip the question. Go na next question, well, please. Uh, But I'm curious. Obviously, you want to wash your shorts out. Maybe not properly, but just, just a bit. But... It depends. If you're racing transcontinental and you're stopping in a hotel, yeah, you can rinse them out in a sink, just good. If, you, if you're racing in Kyrgyzstan, not a chance, no. So so you'll wear the same shorts for eight days straight. Um, I have like some cream, there's like antimicrobial and stuff that I put on my my you know my skin on my undercarriage to, to keep it clean. But uh, yeah, you'll wear the same clothes for eight days, nine days straight, and you've got to be comfortable with that. <laughs> Awesome. And one more one more question before we move on to the, another race that you did the the further race. So your weight at the beginning of one of these things, and with all those thousands of calories that you burn, I mean, you're in a catabolic state. You're going to lose weight. Yeah. What what do you start and what do you end at? Yeah, you are in catabolic state, or for me anyway. Some some people might not be, but because of the way I race, I, I am. You know, because of the the distances and times I spend racing uh, rather than not sleeping. 
I let's say I'd start at 75 and I might end at, uh, and this is an eight day race. I might end at 69, you know, I'd be losing <laughs> six kilos and that's eating as much as I can. And it, it's, it's got to the point now when I went to Kyrgyzstan, I actually made sure that I weighed about 78 before I started that race because I knew I was going to be under eating, if not getting uh, food poisoning. And, um, I finished probably around 70 or so there. So James, I got a million dollar business idea for you. You can you can stru- start a weight loss program. <laughs> Anybody that wants yeah. to lose six to seven kilos, just do this race. Um, you just need a bit of uh, mental willpower. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. The thing is, though, you're it's not very uh, um, productive. Glorious? You know, pe- people yo-yo. <laughs> Uh, because you'll get to the finish and you'll still have that eating uh, desire that you've had by, by stripping so many calories and, and people will binge for 10, 14, maybe even a month afterwards. So I'll often find that my weight will yo-yo back up to perhaps beyond where I was at the start. And, and then you have to try and lose that. <laughs> Keep racing. <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> so let's do talk about the, the further race. Um, that was last year. Um, obviously we had something called COVID restrictions in place, but you got to race against some ex pros that Jens and I both know, uh, and you beat them. You beat Christian, <laughs> Meyer, Christian Meyer and Lawrence Tendam. Um, how did it feel like to, to compete against the guys that used to do this for a living? Because let me, let me tell you, those two guys definitely have the mental beans to do what you do. So, so further for, for those that don't know, further this really interesting race in the Ariège Pyrenees in, in France run by Camille McMillan, who's actually the guy from our earlier story who took the fun photo of me with my head taped up. So we have a long history. It was also my wedding photographer as well, but he'd be ashamed if, uh, for me telling that. So I have to tell the story. And, um, it's about 550 kilometers, I think. And 15-ish thousand meters. And the way it's set up is, is, is completely different. There are sectors, you know, like um, like you have when you race Paris-Roubaix, you have sectors of cobblestones, but he has sectors of off-road sections. And you have to race every single one of these sectors in chronological order, but you can free route between the sectors. But really everyone ends up on the same route between the sectors because there's only one way to go. Some of the sectors have like nighttime curfews, so you can't ride that sector between, let's say, 8 p.m. and 8 a.m. I can't remember the exact times for for safety reasons. You know, some of them have the massive Pyrenean mountain sheepdogs on that you don't really want to come into contact with because these things are like a bear. And the other ones are perhaps a bit dangerous in in his, his opinion. The race, the race came down to one of these sectors, sector 16. And I sat down with like uh, an Excel spreadsheet. So, so my formal education is as a civil engineer. I love an Excel spreadsheet. And I sat down with an Excel spreadsheet before the race and worked out all of my timings uh, and everything potentially. And this was based off Emma Pooley, who won the race the year before, who's an incredible racer. And, and based off her timings, I kind of thought, well, maybe I'll be able to go as fast as her. And I, I realized that sector 16... If you didn't get a hustle on from the start, you would struggle to get through that sector before the time cutoff. Therefore, if anyone was able to get through that sector before the time cutoff, you would then have a massive time advantage on anyone else and you'd essentially go on to win the race un- unchallenged. Now, I knew this from the start. I got my hustle on from the start and I just, I mean, I had about an hour and a half spare, but I got through sector 16. 
I, I, I wrote down the town below and I had some spare time because I couldn't start, you know, let's say sector 18 until 8 a.m. in the morning. And it would only take me four hours to get there. But I had eight hours spare, you know, something like that. So there I was sitting in this hotel waiting, eating my dinner. And uh, lo and behold, who rolls through the front door? Uh, Christian Meyer. <laughs> so Christian Meyer had obviously got through the sector as well. And now the race was really on. So it was me and Christian Meyer and we've made it through the sector. Laren's 10 down was in third, but wasn't going to make it through the sector. So I said to Christian, right, Christian, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm going to get up at this time and leave to ride to the sector. You know, if you want to come with me, whatever, but I, I'm going to get there so that I can start the sector at the first moment that you're allowed to enter that sector. So I was there. I got there a bit early and I waited for 20 minutes or so. Started riding up the sector. So the sector was like a thousand meter climb. And then it was a descent off the sector, another small sector. And then it was like a, a flat out time trial uh, to the finish. So halfway up this thousand meter climb, Christian caught me and came past like a freight train. I mean, like I'm not a very fast rider. I just plug away basically. And I thought, oh, you know, I, I was just demoralized at this point. I thought, God, there's no way I'm going to catch up with this guy. He's so quick. But I also had it in my head that anything could go wrong. I'm just going to keep riding as fast as I can and stick on it. Anyway, the weather was really bad. As I got to the top, it was sort of 2,000 meters-ish. The rain had come in and it was really windy. I then caught up with him at the top of the final sector. And from this sector, it was like a 1,500 meter descent and then a 10K sort of flat time trial into the finish. And Christian was like, trying to put a rain jacket on or something for the descent. And I had mine on already when I got to that point. So I just said, hi, bye, and shot down the descent. And I was like, Christ. So anyway, I descended down, started time trialing along the flat. And obviously, you know, pulling on the front all day is what Christian does. And he's ridiculously strong, but uh, I have been known to do a time trial now and again. And there was um, seven minutes between us when, when, I, when, I, when we got to the finish. And thankfully, I came in first and he came in second. <laughs> and then uh, Lauren's who who said to me afterwards had no bloody idea what he'd signed up for um <laughs> uh came in third and, and i think that's a real testament to to both you know christian christian learned a lot because he raced atlas mountain race earlier in the year and, and is really starting to you know be a student of, of it and, and learning how to race and he's going to get a lot better and, and lauren's um did, did what i did and uh, had the baptism of fire <laughs> So now you do race a lot for many days or weeks. You do train a lot. What sort of legend is your partner to put up with that? <laughs> I mean, tell us a little, about, a little bit about her, how she, how does she cope with it? And um, apparently she has an e-bike so she can train with you. How, how did yeah. that go? Yeah, nice question, Jens. Um, so, so yeah, uh, Isabel, my wife, uh, we're, we're married. We've been married for a good few years now. We've actually been together for uh, 12 years. So we met when we were 19. And um, we, we've changed and grown a lot together. So she's had to embrace this as, as it's gone along. Um, she obviously supports what I do completely and, and loves it, though perhaps, uh, you know, does sacrifice and put up with with what i do but then there are benefits and yeah canyon were, were kind enough to to get her an, an e-bike so she got uh, the grail so the gravel bike and and around girona 
there's loads of off-road riding. So now we just go training together, you know, four or five hours together, which before wasn't, wasn't possible. Um, because, you know, we'd go for kind of, you know, easy rides or more like recovery rides together. Um, but we couldn't do big days. So now we can do big days together and that, that's really cool. And obviously she works a, a normal job, like a normal person, which, which she's really good at and, and things. So, yeah. Talking about strong women, you mentioned that you, um, looked at Emma Pooley's results from the year before. And the cool thing is there's been a couple of female winners in some of these ultra cycling events and the elite women have um, gotten on the podium as well. What do you think it is about ultra cycling that levels the, the playing field? It's, it's worth pointing out that actually these races aren't like men and women or, or, you know, binary separate. They are everyone races together. It doesn't matter who you are, what age you are, nothing. You race in one race. Whoever wins, wins. And over the years, as more women have got into the sport, we've seen them excel and, you know, kick, kick ass. And Fiona Koblinger won the transcontinental race outright first position uh, in 2020, which was incredible to see, um, uh, 2019. There, there are many others, you know, Leo Wilcox, uh, Alexander Huchin. Um, I don't know exactly what it is, but I think there are many, there are many interesting things. There are some interesting sort of biological things, um, you know, about fat metabolism that we, you know, I read scientific papers and there's studies out there saying, you know, women can, you know, metabolize fat at higher rates. And obviously ultra endurance racing is a lot about that. I think a lot of it does come down to, you know, women are incredibly mentally tough and, and, you know, perhaps more so, you know, or at least the same as men, I would argue more so. And we've seen in, in ultra running as well, people like Jasmine Paris um, and Courtney Downwater put in performances that, that, you know, men could dream of really. And I, I must say, I think as we see, you know, the disparity in, in percentages of, of men racing and women racing is stark, you know, like these races are 90% men and 10% women, which is, which is tragic. It is changing though, with uh, more women doing well uh, and, you know, thus raising the, um, profile but i think as we see more women come into racing we are just going to see uh the, the, you know a, a greater consistency in in them uh, achieving you know the top five places and, and winning a lot more so now that you did the transcontinental race what else is left for you what's the next big goal <laughs> or like let me go totally wild here if somebody asks you hey i want to create a race around the world like a month Would you ever there sign? There's one. <laughs> one? No. Would you ever sign yeah. up for that? Yeah, so it's interesting. Uh, before COVID hit, um, a guy called Michael Wacker, who runs a few races, was organizing a race around the world. There have been people that have done individual attempts over the years. And actually, speaking of women, uh, there's a lady called Varangi and, and you know, and Jenny uh, Jenny Graham, who's Scottish as well, holds the Guinness World Record for that. So there, it, there is that. Um, Would I do it? Never say never, obviously, because you'd regret that. But it's 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 not it's not there yet. You know, it's like you don't want to go out and do the biggest thing, like right in the beginning, because what are you going to have left? You know, you want to save these things for the future. There there are so many of these races, and I've kind of got into the off-road scene, and there are some amazing races there. Um, you know, the Tour Divide, 
I've got to go back to Silk Road Mountain Race and get a good position in there. I'd like to do further again. Um, I messed the Highland Trail 550 up when I raced that before, so I want to do that again. I was second in Atlas Mountain Race, so I want to go back and get first there. There, there are so many races. And with what I do, you can only do two, maybe three, if you're doing it full-time races a year because it just takes so much out of the body. The toll is astronomical. Um, so... I can't do many races each year, so I have plenty of years left to keep doing them. <laughs> yeah, you're you're young still. You're young, and um, you've given us a lot of time, and we're very thankful for that. But what one piece of advice would you give to someone listening to this podcast that's inspired or curious, maybe Jens, um, to, Hopefully to, Jens. <laughs> to to do these events? What what little tidbit of information would you would you say is the most important i think the most important thing that i would say is the thing that i use myself a lot is just to not be afraid to go out there and you know jump with two feet into that challenge you will likely potentially fail the first time but keep coming back keep learning and keep trying again and that's how you grow that one of the awesome. first things i did read about you was you're saying when i leave my comfort zone I feel alive. Are you still live by that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, completely. I, I I moved to Spain. Don't speak the language. No idea about anything. You know, just yeah, just get on with it and do it. And uh, yeah, I feel alive. Fantastic. <laughs> I love that. So, James, both Bobby and me, we thank you for your time. You give us almost an hour of your time. And you told us a lot of interesting and fascinating facts and stories. You were a great partner. Thanks a million for being our guest. Thank you so much for having me. It's my absolute pleasure. Okay, everyone. Uh, it's time for the hashtag Shut Up Legs Award again. Yenzi, a lot of bike racing, a lot of news. Who's your Shut Up Legs Rider of the Week? As always, it is incredibly hard to pick one because there's a lot of impressive bike racing out there. But my pick, my Shut Up Legs Award of the Week goes to Tadej Pogacar. Because from having his friend and teammate in yellow, himself looking as a potential overall winner or stage winner on the last day of the Tour of the Pay Basque, they lost everything and Tadej Pogacar took it like a champ, riding all by himself for the last 40 or 50 kilometers like a solo time trial, with a bunch of wannabes and maybe wannabes on his wheel not willing to help him. And he just rode and rode and rode. In the end, they lost it. Yellow and stage and the podium or in the overall but he wouldn't give up that is cbt a character building tour that is my shut up legs award of the week that is true but um you know we did have some great races like the shelter price jesper philipson won that for the men and lorena webbs won it for the women We had some great racing there, like you said, in, in Pay Basque. And hats off to Primoz Rolic for coming through and winning probably the hardest race around. But for me, hands down, Mark Cavendish is my hashtag Shut Up Legs Rider of the Week because we saw him in Copa Bartoli. He got fourth in, uh, in a sprint. He got second in a sprint. We saw him at the Shelter Price. He actually got third um, behind his teammate, Sam Bennett and Jesper Philipsen. 
And then he gets on a plane to go to Turkey, and the first stage of tour of Turkey is canceled because of snow. So, you know, who knows if the race is going to go on, whatnot. And he wins not only the second stage, but the third stage as well. So we all love Cav. He definitely battled back, but now he's back with the Wolf Pack. He's back on his favorite bicycle. And I tell you, he's got his confidence back. And I tell you, Mark Cavendish riding for the Wolf Pack at Decoyne Quick Step and with, with his favorite bicycle, look out. I mean, I am so excited. I mean, you were starting to think that maybe this was the end and that he wouldn't get another chance at beating Eddie Merckx's uh, stage record in, in the Tour de France. But now everything's on the table. Now we just got to keep our, our fingers crossed and um, hope that things go well. So congratulations, Mark Cavendish. Hashtag shut up legs, rider of the week. Well, that's all of our time for this week. Huge thank you to James for being our guest. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Velo News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne, and this episode was edited by Kirk Warner. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us.